This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal country. Welcome to This Week. It's a case that's gripped the nation and stunned a small Victorian community, a family gathering that ended in tragedy. The Homicide Squad is investigating the deaths of three people from suspected mushroom poisoning in Victoria. A fourth victim remains in a critical condition in a Melbourne hospital as police turn their attention to a 48-year-old relative who prepared the meal. Police suspect the lunch contained death cap mushrooms, the deadliest type in the world. The woman who cooked that day, Erin Patterson, is being investigated by police and vehemently denies she's done anything wrong. I'm devastated. I love them. And I can't believe that this has happened and I'm so sorry that they have lost their lives. So what do we know about what happened on that fateful day in the town of Leongatha? You know, it is really unusual. It's a very, very unusual set of uh, circumstances and, I suppose, allegations. John Ferguson is a journalist and associate editor with The Australian newspaper, and he's been in Victoria's Gippsland region covering the suspected poisoning. What we've got is a woman, 48-year-old woman by the name of Erin Patterson, who had a lunch at her house on the edge of Lee and Gather on July 29. She had as guests her ex-in-laws, Don Patterson and Gail Patterson, and two church friends, Heather Wilkinson and Ian Wilkinson. We know that Ms Patterson, Aaron Patterson, served the victims a meal of beef wellington, which included what uh, we believe were toxic mushrooms. Don Patterson, her former father-in-law, died on August 5. Her former mother-in-law, Gail Patterson, died on August 4. And Heather Wilkinson died on August 4. So let's just say it wasn't a successful lunch party at all. This was a a family affair, as you mentioned, the lunch cooked by Erin Patterson. What was her relationship like with her parents-in-law and her family? There's nothing to suggest that she didn't get on with Don Patterson and Gail Patterson or the other couple. They're all aged in their 60s or 70s. This is a very tight-knit, it's a cliche, but it is a tight-knit community. The four who either died or are in hospital are really decent people. And I've no doubt that when Aaron Patterson separated from the Patterson's son, Simon, around about 2020, that they would have made every effort, uh, the family would have made every effort to try and keep things going. I just want to take a slight dog leg for our listeners who might not know what a death cap mushroom is. They're not native to Australia, but they do appear in the ACT and parts of Victoria. Where do they appear, John? What do you know about them? Well, they basically grow often under oak trees, high rainfall areas, and you tend to get them around the autumn period. We know they are highly, highly toxic, that basically if you have enough of these mushrooms, they can lead to, in most severe circumstances, organ failure. They attack kidneys, liver. Basically, they're they're a bit of a death sentence. James, you're you're a grew up in the country like I did, uh, we were always told three things. Uh, one, don't play with tiger snakes. Two, don't swim in the dam if, if an adult's not with you. And three, don't go anywhere near mushrooms. 
it's pretty widely known amongst country people that you've got to be careful of mushrooms. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good advice. Um, most poisonings of death cat mushrooms seem to occur when people accidentally pick them up while foraging for other types of mushrooms. So with that in mind, when did Erin Patterson become a suspect of homicide detectives? And do you have any inkling why? Well, it's interesting because the police, have, in one sense, have been open, but in another sense, they've been quite closed about their investigation. They told us Monday a week ago, so not this last Monday, the Monday before, that she was a suspect. So at this point, three people were dead. Um, they're not saying absolutely that she has, with intent, done anything to these people because we don't know. And that we need to, I suppose, that stress, stress that to listeners. You recently uh, did an interview with Erin. What's she like and uh, what does she say? about, you know, this speculation that's uh, swirled around her over the past week or so? Look, James, I did speak to her. I, I just basically knocked on the door and we spoke for about three minutes. She was really uh, unhappy. Like, you would, it's no great surprise there, but she was pretty angry and really completely over the scrutiny that she's facing. She believes that she's sort of basically, in her words, that she was being painted to be a, a witch and, and that she, you know, that um, obviously that, the implication of everything is that, that that she's done something that she shouldn't have done. Now, what I got out of that fairly brief conversation was that she struck me as being a very smart woman. She said a couple of things that that I won't repeat. That I just that that just made me think. Well, she's she's well read. She, she's up with things. She's definitely a shy person. Everyone you speak to in that town, it's very hard to find anyone knows her as a friend. But she goes about her, her business dropping the kids off at school. Even then, she just keeps to herself. We also know that she's, James, that she's relatively wealthy. She's got above average mm. wealth. She basically trades property. I think we're dealing with a shy, smart, and obviously at the moment, deeply unhappy person. John, Erin Patterson recently gave a statement to police. So where does she say she got the mushrooms from? Well, so she claims in that statement to police that she bought mushrooms from an Asian shop in or around Mount, Mount Waverley, which is in Melbourne, sort of uh, middle to outer eastern suburbs. But she couldn't say where exactly and which shop it was. And she bought some button mushrooms from a supermarket as well. So that's where she's claiming she bought these mushrooms from, those two places, without being specific about where the Asian grocery was. And I understand that the police are also looking into a food dehydrator that Erin Patterson disposed of at some point. She discussed this in her statement as well, I think. So the dehydrator can be used to basically enhance flavours and enable things like mushrooms to be used in dishes. Um, she, she says in the statement that she, that she said initially to police that it had been disposed of months ago. But then police found the dehydrator at a nearby tip. And she claims basically that she, she panicked. She, she says that she's worried about uh, whether she's got two children of school age, whether she might uh, lose those. But it's not something that necessarily proves or disproves guilt. Toxicology uh, takes a long time. So do these sorts of investigations. And uh, I think police have said a few times, look, we're, ke we're keeping an open mind in this. We're, we're looking at everything as we, we go. Where does this case go next, do you think? Well, it's really complicated and it will probably take weeks is the final toxicology reports will come back. 
But of course, the police investigation will be wide. Uh, They'll be looking at all her Google activity, computers, what she's been reading, who she's been talking to. They'll also be looking at uh, past activity uh, in relation to uh, her ex-husband, Simon Patterson, fell quite ill in the middle of last year. Now, what caused that illness? Uh, what were the various factors around that? So this is not just about, I suppose, the toxicology reports. It's going to be much wider than that. I've spoken to legal experts that say it's a very high bar to prove intent, if that's what it comes down to. And look, they'll also be looking at other things as well as to whether mm. it might have just been a, a Horrendous, yeah, accident. Yeah, mistake, accident, yes. Yeah. As you sort of allude to there, I mean, there's a lot we don't know about this case. And in small towns, you know, rumours can fly around uh, pretty uh, quickly. I just want to sort of end where we began. What has this done to this small community in Gippsland? Look, I think the first and most important thing it's done, it's, it's robbed Corumbara of three uh, excellent citizens who basically were real. Everything I hear about them is nothing but positive. So that's the obvious thing. But what it's also done is it's it's put the world, it's literally the world spotlight. I, you know, these are small communities that, that really are all about people just going about their own business. You know, you wouldn't live in Corumbara if you are dreaming of the of the bright lights. It's just people, ordinary country Australians doing their bit. They don't want this. And, you know, they don't particularly want the media there. So it's having a massive impact. On, on the communities, no question. John Ferguson is a journalist and associate editor with The Australian Newspaper. Now, governments across Australia are increasingly facing political pressure over the cost of housing. A lack of supply of homes is being exacerbated by soaring construction costs, builders going out of business and growing demand as more people come to Australia. Meanwhile, rents have been going up as well. We all know that housing supply is the key. We all know as well that that renters need more rights, but it can't be done in a way that actually uh, dampens housing supply. This week, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, met with state and territory leaders to make a new suite of promises aimed at alleviating the problem. They've set a new goal of building 1.2 million homes over five years with $3 billion worth of federal incentives to encourage action. But when it comes to housing, few think there's a simple fix. When you think of the amazing hits to house prices in Australia, COVID and shutdown of our economy, and more recently, the fastest increase in uh, interest rates, none of that has made a real dent on Australia's house prices. Chris Richardson is an independent economist and one of the country's top economic forecasters. The fundamental thing is pretty simple. It's also pretty complex. We have not built enough housing where people want it to be, and we haven't delivered what we have delivered at reasonable prices. That combination is increasingly choking off the hopes of a generation of younger Australians. I've read, and I'm not sure how much of this is evident through the actual housing data, that Australians through the pandemic fell back in love with the suburbs, the slightly bigger house that had a spare room for the home office, uh, you know, complete with lighting for Zooms and Teams calls and things like that. Has that at all helped distort or hold up the market 
slightly more over the past couple of years. Oh, absolutely. And you're seeing it around the world, not just in Australia. Basically, the prices of offices, particularly in CBDs, have gone down at a time when the prices of houses in the suburbs uh, have gone up. And it makes sense. You know, basically, many more people now working from home. Ahead of COVID, about 4%. Now, almost a third uh, of Australians working from home. That means uh, more space at home is more valuable than ever before. That's part of the reason, but that's also not going to disappear. So, Chris, just to get back to your main point, and I think it's the point that a lot of mainstream politicians raise, and that is we need to boost housing supply, basically build many more homes in places that people actually want to live, which should, in theory, mean less competition for houses, meaning prices stabilise or at least don't go up as fast. That's easy to say, but it's very, very difficult to achieve, isn't it? Absolutely. And to be clear, yes, most politicians are gradually getting there. Most experts got there a while ago. We do need to do it. Essentially, the NIMBY, not in my backyard, you know, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, council by council, year by year, decade by decade, we have succeeded in saying no to a lot. But the fundamental impact of that is to say no to the hopes, housing hopes of the next generation. The federal government says it's agreed now with the states on a plan to start boosting supply. The target is 1.2 million homes over five years. Do we have the capacity, the people at the moment, to build that many homes? And if we do, is it enough? Is it in the kind of realm of enough to start making a substantial difference? Yes, this is very much a step in the right direction. Good to see. But there are risks. We may not have a housing sector that's capable of delivering that target on time. Don't have the apprentices, don't have the skills. And although uh, there is some movement at the station as part of the recent announcements, that may not be enough. The bigger problem, if you like, you know, the old saying that all politics is local. There is now a national understanding and state leadership understanding that we need to build uh, more in Australia in the right places at better prices. But that means if all politics is local, that's where all our problems are. We have to, you know, council meeting by council meeting, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, shift a dial that is very much concreted in place. I want to ask you about that. I think Canberra is quite a striking case of this because you have inner city parts of Canberra that are not as dense as the newer suburbs, more towards the outskirts. And there are very vocal groups of generally wealthier, wealthier locals who are, who are blocking this additional development. What do you think can be done to encourage those people to accept different zoning laws that would allow more apartments in their suburbs, more low-density, medium-density townhouses? It's hard because people aren't trying to do the wrong thing. NIMBYs are mostly very proud of what they achieve for what they think they're doing around their neighbourhood. And to be a NIMBY, by the way, is also to make money if you can stop uh, more housing in your neighbourhood and, and your suburb, then you, the price of your home goes up. It's the education campaign. You know, the sadly for every winner, there are more losers. And these barnacles have built up now for so many years that younger Australians, absent not merely a bank of mum and dad, but a very well-heeled bank of mum and dad, you know, you can see basically no housing future. And I, I think that's got to uh, change. It's education that is ultimately going to make the biggest difference. 
In any crisis, I think it's fair to call it a housing crisis in this country. Politicians generally try to play politics. Currently, the Prime Minister's plan to build housing for some of the poorest Australians who could otherwise be homeless is stuck in the Senate. And the Greens, on the other hand, are trying to use the passage of that bill to call for a rent freeze. Does a rent freeze in a country as big and diverse as Australia have any merit, do you think? It doesn't, and we know it doesn't because there have been many rent freezes around the world and the numbers are in, if you like, the evidence is in. What you get ahead of the initial rent freeze is a big leap in rents. More importantly, though, is the long-term impact. You're treating a symptom, not a cause. And if the cause is that we don't have enough housing, but you have rent caps uh, in place so people can't earn money from investing in housing, ultimately you get less housing than you'd otherwise have had. And just to really spell that out, that's because if you were, say, for example, wealthy, you had some spare money to invest, you're probably more likely to look at, say, the stock market than an apartment and a new apartment block if your returns were going to be crimped by a government rule. Yeah, that's exactly right. Money can go where it wants to go, basically, and other things equal. If you're going to say that investing in housing earns less, then you'll get less investment in housing. It is interesting to see how this idea, and it is a pretty simple, easy to understand idea of a rent freeze or, or, or cap, is sort of catching on among younger Australians, those who don't have inheritances or access to housing or the bank of mum and dad, as you said, and, and they are becoming an increasingly influential voting block as they make up more and more of the, the population. Do you think older Australians would be wise to pay a little bit more heed to that growing discontent? In any society, ultimately, we're all in it together. And if we do dumb things year in, year out for a long enough period of time that we really mess with the future of one group, uh, you know, it's not a surprise when they get grumpy about it. And again, when something sounds simple, it's going to sound seductive. But the answer ultimately is supply. The Prime Minister said it in his uh, speech to the ALP conference. The fundamental answer to all this is building more homes. Now, not saying uh, that the new policies are perfect. They are, however, hopefully, the beginning of the end uh, to some of the dumbest things that Australians have done to themselves for many, many years now. Just finally, Chris, I wanted to build on that. I wanted to ask you, how optimistic are you that the housing crisis will ever be solved, that we can actually fix this? So Australian cities don't have that sort of middle ring of housing that is evident in so many other cities around the world. You know, think of them as six apartments in a block, uh, for example. And we got to where we are by many, many years of doing the wrong thing. Nobody has a magic wand. The fundamental solution is supply, and that is slow. That is slow. That is slow. We've got ourselves into this mess over generations. Sadly, it's going to take a generation to dig ourselves back out of this hole. Chris Richardson is an independent economist and one of the country's top economic forecasters. Well, Matilda's fans were crushed this week when England ended Australia's World Cup run, winning the semi-final in Sydney 3-1. There's the final whistle in the background, and it's England 
who break the Australian hearts of Stadium Australia. Players in gold shirts drop to the ground all around the stadium. I'm really sad for you, the Matildas. Sam did really well. You all did really well. It was a really, really, really tough match. Unfortunately, the better team won, but, like, I'm so proud of the girls. Like, so proud of them, and um, I hope they know that. But the match was reportedly seen by more than 11 million people in Australia. In fact, it was the most watched TV program in more than 20 years. And this Matilda side is the first ever Australian team to reach the final four of a Soccer World Cup. The girls are just such incredible athletes. It's definitely been an honour to watch them. Hopefully we won something else. Uh, we won the heart and the passion for this, for this game in this country. You can feel that things have changed forever. You couldn't find a more appreciative group than us. This weekend, they'll face Sweden in the third place playoff. But fans are already wondering what this tournament might mean for soccer and women's sport in Australia in the long run. I think this tournament shows how women's sport can be done. It's given a blueprint for success and it's brought so many more people into sport that might have been disconnected from sport. Casey Simons is a postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University working in the Sport Innovation Research Group. While the result was a little bit disappointing and of course as a sports fan you want your team to win and a victory is you know important but for what the Matildas achieved the emotions that I was feeling right away wasn't so much disappointment. I think that was eased pretty quickly by just sitting in that stadium and being part of the moment. All those emotions really came to play. And then just the spirit of the team and what the Matildas mm. were able to do on the pitch was just the cherry on top of that to have that sense of pride of mm. the amazing athletes that they are as well. Uh, it was Sam Kerr who scored that amazing goal on the field. Off it, she's called for more investment in sport to leave a legacy from this tournament. Now, the Australians, I think, have really loved the Matildas over the past few weeks, but will we continue to love women's sport, do you think? I really hope so, um, mm. but that is a huge that's a huge question and is bringing a lot of fear, I think, in the community of women's sport, volunteers, administrators, athletes, journalists. There's a whole community that's been in this space for a long time that has been pushing, that has been agitating and advocating for funding, investment, support, coverage. There's so many pieces that need more work and having something like this amazing event on our shores um, co-hosted with New Zealand has been really successful and we've seen what can happen when we pull all of those levers and what is possible. It's sort of created almost a bit of a blueprint moving forward and it wasn't perfect. There are definitely some things we can get better and learn from and that's the hope, I suppose, with something like this, that there are key learnings, that there are successes to move forward. But also we know that when mega sporting events come to town, they create this amazing atmosphere and this glow, but they leave and then sometimes things are forgotten. Mm. And we have these legacy strategies that are attached to these events to try to uh, keep the momentum going and try to capitalise on the success. But legacy strategies are very difficult to implement mm. and very difficult to measure. So Money in this space is very important. The World Cup prize money is about a third of what the men get. And a little bit's made in that. But maybe the bigger issue is that at a, at a more local level, the base wage for the uh, women's league here is less than $20,000. Now, how, how important is cash uh, just in terms of boosting professionalism in women's sport? 
It's hugely important. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the fundamentals of building a business is you need to inject cash. You need to spend money to make money. This is a business principle and we need to start treating our women's sporting codes like a business. Right now we treat men's sports like a business and mm. we treat women's sports like charity. And when I say that, we're asking women's uh, athletes to do so much labour outside of their sporting contracts to build the game without that investment. So we're asking them to play, of course. Um, they're probably doing more than that in terms of other employment <laughs> and study to uh, survive, yeah. <laughs> essentially. But they are doing the promotion. They are advocating. They are getting out there and trying to bring fans in. They do so much without that uh, infrastructure of additional funding mm. and investment. So there's so much that they have on their shoulders and we still expect them to succeed and drive their sports forward. In terms of making it a, a business, uh, how important was it then that the semi-final pretty much smashed all Australian TV records? It shows that there's a product that uh, people want to watch. Absolutely. And it shows that when you treat it uh, like you should treat any sort of business or anything that you are trying to demonstrate that has value, if you invest in it, if you put it on all the channels, if you make it an amazing spectacle and you create a fan culture around that with fan sites and events and merchandise and you put it up in lights and you give it the appropriate messaging, if you treat something like that, then it does become a viable product because people want to be part of it. Mm. So this was a really great example of how you can sell women's sport in a way that is promoting the value of these athletes, that they are exciting, that they are going to give you a great entertainment product, but also does so much more to make you feel like you want to be part of something really exciting. So as I said before, this is a, continues to be part of that blueprint that these things are possible if we just do a little bit more work around just depending on the athletes to just go out there and play and do all of that work themselves to drive an audience, to drive interest, to keep pushing for change. If we do that with them and alongside them and we invest, there is return on investment mm -hmm. there and there's value there. In terms of popularity and you know growing the game, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Soccer is actually already pretty popular among girls. I think I'm right in saying it's second only to netball. Um, how much funding does women's sport, how much funding does soccer and netball get, say, compared with, you know, the really big codes like AFL and NRL? I think at this point we can just broadly say just it pales in comparison um, rather than going into the nitty gritty because there is such a gap uh, to catch up and women's sports collectively just do not receive enough funding and support. They do have to do so much on their own and that catch up piece is a really important part of the narrative we need to reduce coming from an event like this mm. and that I think is the legacy of an event like this that we were able to do all of uh, these amazing things around a global sporting mega event on our shores it was a success but the narratives that we sometimes see in women's sports James which is really difficult to navigate is while we have this catch-up narrative that one day we'll get there one day we'll close the gap and the women will get there at some point the the talent will develop and and one day we'll reach this you glorious nirvana of everything being equal what happens in the meantime is we almost use the successes it's a bit of a double-edged sword so we can look mm. at this success of the women's world cup and say they were able to achieve all of this and we got all of these wins 
despite of not being fully funded and despite of the barriers, they were able to do all of this. So sometimes it can justify Hmm. not pulling all of those levers right away. And then the flip side of that is if it's not successful and we didn't get all the, um, the wins that we got throughout this tournament, it justifies not funding as well because then we say, well, they're not up to par yet, so we're not going to invest just yet. So women's sport really does most of the time sit in a no win situation. So we need to make a decision as as a country, as governing bodies of sport, as as media, as sponsors to get on board and just stop sort of waiting in this sort of will we, won't we invest time. The time is now. We just need to do it. Is this World Cup going to be the turning point, do you think, for women's sport in Australia? That's the hope we all have. And it has to be now. It should have been 10 years ago, it should have been 20 years ago, it should have been 50 years ago. But right now we're at an amazing time to keep this momentum going. And my question to that is, if not now, when? What are we waiting for? What is this amazing time that we're sort of building towards that we think is the right time to invest in women's sport to just go for it who is making that decision who is following that journey and going to say oh yeah actually now is the time that's the sort of interesting space we're navigating is that we're working towards this progress narrative and this time where women's sport has caught up to men's sport but no one knows who's actually making that call so why don't we just collectively make the call now and just do it Dr. Casey Simons is a postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Eleanor Whitehead, Anna John, and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.